A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Audio journalist and author Rachel Matlow, hello. Hey, Jesse. Glad to have you here. Listen, today on the show, Alberta's premier bans surgeries that were not actually happening and sets back sex education in schools by about 50 years. Not very libertarian of her, but Jordan Peterson visited the province and it would be rude not to welcome him with a gift. Also on today's show, invitations for Nazis, cancellations for Jews, the shameful takedown of Selena Robinson. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Alyssa Walzak, Anthony Watts, Nathan Zilagi, Michael Phillips, Christopher Hinchcliffe, Gary Harrington, Jennifer Wilson, and Ronica. Hi, my name is Ronica. I live in Toronto where I cook a bit, read a bit, and also dance tango a bit. I support Canada Land because it is entertaining, sometimes infuriating and annoying, but also funny and often interesting and engaging. It covers topics that are often overlooked. I like the duly noted bits. Alberta's new plans for trans youth are making headlines across the country. The province is introducing new parental rights rules that will impact everything from health care for transgender children to what educators can teach in the classroom. We've I've been watching as well as some of the uh, some of the uh, incidents that have happened in sport. I just saw a video making the round about a rugby game where one woman was just picked up and pile drive by a much stronger transgender female athlete. Here's the thing. The Premier of Alberta is out here spouting misinformation to support her anti-trans policies. Because the player in that viral video that she's talking about 
isn't even trans. We, we've, we've allowed the medical profession to make a lot of decisions without scientific evidence, and that's why the I'm a bit concerned. The medical profession is making decisions without scientific evidence. Yeah, Aren't they, they making them exclusively based they, on scientific evidence? I, I wish that were the case. It is the case that the medical community made recommendations based on science and that uh, the Premier of Alberta is uh, has made, you know, this is just factual, these new policies are in direct opposition to what health professionals are strongly suggesting. That's my understanding of this one. Rachel, have you been following this? Yeah, I, I have, of course, yeah. And that's what it is. Her, her policies are totally at odds with all the evidence out there about gender-affirming care and sexual health and sports. To get people, like, up to date, I want to look at the coverage of this, but just on a factual level, like, what are these policies? It took me a little while to get my head around it, but just from an explainer point of view, Globe and Mail and CBC were, were, were pretty helpful. So my understanding is it's like a whole suite of of new policies, mostly concerning kids, mm-hmm. banning surgeries for kids under, what is it, 16? Under 18. Under 18. And and it was helpful to not just give me that on a factual basis, because what I learned from the Globe and Mail is like, those surgeries were already banned in some cases because there's there's top surgery and then there's bottom surgery. And so, like, kids were not getting bottom surgery anyhow. That's That was an impossibility. And then I believe that there were only, like, under 100 cases total in the entire province of top surgery that were, like, somewhere between 16 and 18. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that sounds about right. It's very, very few trans youth are actually getting medical intervention massive amount of attention, a law basically to ban something that was only happening under 100 times in one case and not at all in the other. Maybe more frequently, trans kids would take hormone blockers. Mm -hmm. And now this policy speaks to that as well. Yeah. And it also, it's, it's just spewing so much misinformation even about hormone therapy and puberty blockers. She says that they're going to be restricted to stop youth from making irreversible changes to their body. When, first of all, parents are already required to give consent for their pubescent kids to receive puberty blockers and and for teens to access hormones. You know, this isn't a decision that anyone takes lightly. And the effects of puberty blockers are are short-lived. They are totally safe, as the evidence shows. They don't cause permanent physical changes to the body, nor do they negatively affect fertility. And the evidence actually shows that puberty blockers lead to better mental health for trans queer youth. But anyway, it's a very small number of trans youth are even seeking medical intervention. This is totally being blown out of proportion. And, you know, the squeamishness about surgery at that vulnerable age it seems kind of counterintuitive to prevent people from getting access to these blockers because then their bodies change in ways that they don't want. The logic of this kind of escapes me, but I'm not sure that logic is really at play here. Like, no. just the insights that we get into Daniel Smith's own understanding of this are concerning. I just want to play you this one clip. Here's, here's Daniel Smith uh, expressing her concern about kids. I, I certainly do not want... Um, children to be making decisions before maybe they've even had sex about whether they want to to uh, to stop that aspect of their life. Rachel, I want to pause and, and like take that sentence <laughs> apart a little bit. <laughs> so the premier of Alberta, she's talking about kids. She does not want children to make decisions before they've even had sex. She wants those children to have sex, <laughs> damn it. 
Yeah, I hope not. All right. If you if you were assigned uh, female gender at birth and you're thinking about maybe taking a hormone blocker or getting this dreaded surgery, try out some D first, kids, says the Premier <laughs> of Alberta. Oh, God. Before. <laughs> I'm not sure that she thought through that whole sentence. No. I don't think she's thinking through a lot of this, if she's being honest. And, and also, we forgot one informational piece of this. Sex ed. Like, Forget about all this very specific stuff that people have been hearing so much about recently, but just sex ed is now like something that is going to be done very differently in Alberta. Anytime sex is mentioned in a classroom, you need to opt in and get permission from your parents. Yeah, sex, even gender identity, anything about human sexuality, uh, yeah, it will require parental notification and an opt-in requirement. Yeah, every time a teacher mentions anything to do with it. Anytime you make something opt-in as opposed to opt-out, like, far fewer people will get it. The number of people who don't get sex education will go way up in Alberta. And, you know, like, teenage pregnancies have been going down in Alberta over 30 years. Uh, One wonders what effect this is going to have on that. Yeah, it'll only go the other way. Like, kids need information about their bodies, about sexuality. It protects them. So let me ask you this question. Daniel Smith, the premier of Alberta, who is a staunch libertarian, doesn't want government intruding in people's personal lives, announcing an unprecedented level of government intervention into a very personal part of people's lives to prevent surgeries that are not even happening. Why? I mean, that's the big question. I mean, I think it just really comes down to her pandering to her far-right base. You know, she wants to stay in power, plain and simple, and this is a great wedge issue to to get votes. You know, back when she was running for party leadership in 2022, she said that she did not want to debate these things in public. And she said, we shouldn't be making any child feel like the issues they're struggling with are something that's a political football. And that's precisely what she is doing. You know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty around gender and sexuality. You know, they were still figuring a lot of these things out. Words, meaning, definitions are changing. We're redefining these these categories of man and woman. And I think she's just, you know, exploiting the confusion to take advantage of this unknown and to leverage it as this, like, highly emotional political issue. She's part of the same people and groups who fought against same-sex marriage and against abortion. And so this this is their new emotional wedge issue to, to win elections. Yeah, why are they so obsessed with the trans youth, you know? Like, it's such a small, vulnerable minority. You know, this is very much kind of just like a made-up debate to win votes and also to distract from the real issues that, that these politicians should be addressing, you know, like housing and healthcare and groceries and and making sure that queer and trans youth are actually safe and supported. I think that it's impossible to talk about this without talking about the larger culture war hot button thing. Like this played a big role in Ron DeSantis's campaign. And you're right that like the people who are actually being discussed here are a very small group of people and a very vulnerable group of people whose I think interests are being completely eclipsed by this larger concept that parents are under attack, that there is a coordinated campaign to indoctrinate and groom children into some sort of queer lifestyle, 
And it's a very sensitive issue for people who, looking at the schoolroom as some sort of extension of the state, of an intrusion of values into your right over your own child, and the idea that your kid might have secrets from you with their teacher, and the teacher's colluding with your kid. Maybe the teacher taught your kid to be trans, and now they're keeping secrets from you that the kids change their name and their pronouns. That is this sort of, like, ball of paranoia that has become very politically effective And it's really depressing that Canadians just have to kind of huff whatever gases the Americans are spewing out. But it's also been going on in Canada for a while, too. The parental rights thing came up when gay-straight alliances started happening. You know, there was outcry about that. So I definitely noticed it been going on for several years here. Sure, Jason Kenney, the same issue flared up there. And it's there's like even previous generations of this debate, for sure. Yeah, But it's, I don't know, it's really sad because this idea of parental rights, you know, it's just, it's being used to justify all this legislation related to gender identity here and in the U.S. But it's not about protecting queer and trans youth who are the most vulnerable, you know. It's it's really just about the far right weaponizing fear to increase their power. And one of the more, like, egregious policies that Smith announced is the policy that will require parental consent for you 15 and under to change their pronouns or or names at school. And for 16 and 17-year-olds, their parents will be notified if they choose to change their name or, or pronouns. And so this policy will essentially require kids to either keep who they are a secret or be outed by the school to their parents, which can possibly put them in danger if they don't have supportive parents. It's just such a mean part of the policy. Like, it only serves to put trans youth in harm's way. Schools should be a safe place for kids to figure out who they are and their gender without fearing that they'll be outed to their family. Let me read to you from something that's been written about this. I'm just going to read it to you first before I tell you what it is or who wrote it. Let's be perfectly clear about one thing. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith's new restrictions on treatments for trans youth are not targeted at trans youth and their families. They are targeted at people who believe that schools have become incubators of queerness and want it stamped out. With this new policy, Ms. Smith has increased the risk of teenage pregnancies in Alberta. Any decent sex ed curriculum will also teach children about people in their community who are LGBTQ. A few of the students in the class may be questioning their own sexuality. They will need support. Equally important... Those who are straight will need to learn about those among them who are not. I'll keep going here. Kids in Alberta, straight kids and queer kids and trans kids need help in a hostile world. After all, some parents tell their children that queer folk are sinners or perverts or groomers. If the situation at home is a problem, then maybe teachers and counselors can help. But the premier of Alberta is determined to curtail that help. It's a damn shame. Now, those words came from... The very conservative columnist John Ibbotson at the Globe and Mail. Mm. And I, I I think they deserve to be applauded, not because I happen to agree with them, but because this is like the good part of conservatism, right? Like, let's conserve a sex ed policy that was working and and was effective at a public policy initiative of like dealing with with teenage pregnancy, which is a, which is a problem. Let's be uh, compassionate and let's also keep government out of people's sex lives and people's uh, relationships with their kids and kids' rights. What is conservatism at its best when it's a good thing is like protecting people's rights from intrusion and these kids have a right 
to have supports if their families will not support them. So that was good to read, kind of surprising. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just nothing reasonable about these policies. They're definitely coming from the far right. I'm sure some parents, like, may honestly think that these kinds of policies are helping trans and queer youth, but they're they're really doing the opposite. And they're actually, it's not just the restrictions that are harmful, it's that they actually encourage more fear and more hate. They lead to increased stigma, bullying, and, and violence for trans youth. So they have far-ranging effects, you know. Like, since the so-called One Million March for Children last September, queer and trans youth across the country have reported an increase in harassment and bullying and mental distress. So, so these have real-life consequences. Real-life consequences. It's, it's, you make a terrific point because it's like, when we talk about, like, just the numbers of people, I don't want that to sound like we're dismissing. Like, we're talking about uh, a very small number of trans kids who this directly affects. And that's actually, like, more cause for concern. Like, to have just, like, a few dozen people in the case of the surgeries or, you know, like, a very small group of people who are at the center of this debate, this very intrusive debate, this very angry debate, and state intrusion is, like, really traumatic and harmful for a very small group of people. But there is a much larger group of queer kids who, like, what this says— it's going to have an impact. Like what this says about the society you live in, the school that you go to, what other people's parents think about you, what your premier thinks about you. Like it reinforces an idea of otherness and weirdness and that something has to be done about people like you. For sure. And and what's so like utterly naive about Smith's uh, announcement video, I don't know, that's what we call it now, but this video where she announced all these policies with this kind of cheesy guitar music in the background and this kind of generic stock footage. She just speaks, you know, under the guise of being so caring. Uh, she cares so much about the trans children. She's just so confident that that parents will, like, she says, quote, love and care for their children no matter what choices they make. And that parents who reject their trans or queer child are rare. She says it's rare, which is just not true. It's just very naive. According to one study by the Family Acceptance Project, 30% of families reject their child when they come out. And many are removed from their homes. You know, stats show that 20% of homeless youth identify as queer, trans, or, or not straight. Not to mention the rates of suicide are incredibly high for queer and trans youth, especially for those who are rejected by their families. So it's just, this is all very naive of Danielle Smith. Yeah, uh, but but harmful nonetheless. Yeah, you know, this new set is definitely Canada's harshest and most restrictive anti-trans policies so far, but it's happening in other provinces too. So it's a problem that really affects the whole country. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free 
with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Rachel Matlow, on this show, we consider it a real crime when an important news story goes unnoticed. People need to notice certain things. We try to help them with that. Do you have something to duly note? I do. Uh, Not that this hasn't been noticed, but I just don't think Joni Mitchell's performance at the Grammys could ever get enough acknowledgement. That's That's what I want to talk about. That's what I'm excited about. I mean, it, it certainly was celebrated, but like, can I tell you something? Like, I, her voice freaked me out as a kid. Like, there was something about it that I did not like. And then, I don't know, something changed in my musical taste so that I'm, like, appreciative of her, like, sheer genius. And, like, she just doesn't sound like anybody else. Like, her voice doesn't sound like anybody else, and those songs are unlike anybody else's. And it really was a special moment. Yeah, I'm still, like tingling from it, you know. At age 80, this was her first performance ever at the award show. She suffered an aneurysm several years ago, and it seemed like she might never sing again. But recently, she's been returning to the stage with Brandy Carlile, and a bunch of other amazing musicians joined her, and she sang Both Sides Now from her 1969 album Clouds, which is fitting because her first Grammy Award 55 years ago was for the Clouds album. So... Full circle. She had so much gravitas on that throne. Right? She just sort of like presided over that room of musicians of just like, I'm Joni fucking Mitchell. Like, Yeah, her throne. She's like holding her staff, her cane. Joni Jam style is what they called it. Yeah. And I love Brandy's introduction when she said that Joni is one of the most influential and emotionally generous creators in human history. She redefined the very purpose of a song to reflect the contents of a person's soul. Hmm. Just She said it right, right on, spot on. She went on to say that uh, Joni is like the first person to strip down at a skinny dipping party to take that awkward, terrifying leap before everyone else joyfully follows. Yeah, it was surprisingly excellent. Like, Annie Lennox, too, blew me away. But all right, everybody, it's on YouTube. Yeah, and Tracy Chapman. Oh, my God. Yeah. How good was it? Who knew that was going to be good? It was good. Oh, uh, so good. Duly noted. Oh, this feels boring by comparison. Just do a music podcast. All right. But no, listen, (laughs) we used to get like mandate letters from premiers. So like whatever they tell the public that they're going to do, here are the letters where they actually tell their ministers, this is what we're really going to do. And then we could compare that to what they actually do. And those are three interesting things, what they say they're going to do, what they actually are trying to do, and then what they finally accomplish. It's just sort of a part of like 
knowing something about government in an open democracy. And the Supreme Court has just ruled that Premier Doug Ford's mandate letters should be kept secret. And whatever else you want to say about Doug Ford, like, he was like, this is good news. I, I mean, yeah, it is good news for him. It's great news for Doug Ford. The journalists cannot access his mandate letters unless they're leaked, which some of them were. Please keep leaking these letters. And mm-hmm. I, I don't understand. Emmett McFarlane has an analysis of the Supreme Court ruling. It's sort of beyond my pay grade to understand this stuff. But uh, I'm told it's quite apt. But this is a, a sad decision for transparency in a increasingly hostile atmosphere towards the public and the public's right to know. Yeah, well, anyway, we know know what he did last summer. Duly noted. This episode is also brought to you by Article. I'm a repeat customer. I'm back. We need a bed for guests. And it's just now it's my go-to. I go to Article. And like, you know, sometimes you look for things like a sofa or a chair because it's kind of fun to look at stylish sofas or chairs if you're into that sort of thing, which I kind of am. But sometimes you just need something like, you know, like a guest bed. And when I go to Article, like, oh, very stylish beds. They've got a very stylish version or four in different colors. And uh, the experience is just always Great. And the price is surprisingly affordable. Curated assortment of mid-century modern coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, and boho designs, which make furniture shopping easy. They are so confident that you're going to like this service as much as I do, that they are offering listeners to this podcast $50 off of your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, visit article.com slash CanadaLand, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. I like sending you to this website because it's a fun website to poke about. It's just good to have a look at article.com slash CanadaLand and And if you buy something, you'll get 50 bucks off of your first purchase of $100 or more. BC's premier announces that Selena Robinson is stepping down from her role as post-secondary education minister, but she will remain in the BC NDP caucus. Selena's comments were wrong. They crossed the line. All right, Rachel, this is a very, I don't know, I find this a very disturbing and complicated and controversial story out of BC where one of the NDP ministers, Selena Robinson, has just stepped down was essentially asked for her resignation as a minister after these comments. And we're going to get to the comments, but I first want to like talk to listeners who might not know who Selena Robinson is. Mm-hmm. And just going through her press clippings over the years, they're pretty good. BCMLA Selena Robinson faces online hate for supporting drag queen story time. That's City News, Vancouver 2023. Selena Robinson has really stepped up to support arts and culture, not only province-wide in the budget, but also within Coquitlam as well, Georgia Strait, 2022. She promoted social housing with uh, much less to say about market housing, Vancouver Sun, 2022. And then like just interesting stuff about her personally. Surrogacy is on the rise two decades after trailblazer Selena Robinson carried a baby for a friend. Mm. When Selena Robinson agreed in 1999 to carry a friend's baby, doctors did not do surrogacies in BC, so she traveled to Calgary. Uh, that's uh, from a 2018 story in the Vancouver Sun. I like to be a good friend, Rachel. I've, I've helped friends move. I've not done anything like, <laughs> like this. She had a, a terrific a reputation as a legislator. And she was particularly valuable because there are not a lot of elected Jewish officials in Canada. Mm-hmm. And Selena Robinson was one of them. You know, there was talk of her as like maybe material to be premier. She had some health issues. She's currently battling cancer. But she was a respected and effective legislator until she said the wrong thing recently at a public event. So let's listen to what she said. I have no idea about the Holocaust. They don't even think it happened. They don't even understand that Israel was 
was offered to the Jews who were who were misplaced, displaced. Um, so they have no connection to how it started. They don't understand that it was a crappy piece of land with nothing on it. You know, there were you know several hundred thousand people, but other than that, it didn't produce an economy. It didn't have. It couldn't grow things. It didn't have anything on it, and that it was the folks who were displaced that 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 came and the people who had been living there for generations and together they worked hard and they had their own battles, right? We know the history. Yeah. So that's not great. This is the kind of thing that will be familiar to some people, what she's talking about there and a little bit mysterious to others because this was denounced as racist. And I think if you're new to this, it's like, well, it doesn't like that's a strange statement, but I didn't hear her talk about any people. She she talked about a, a a crappy piece of land with nothing on it, which is like it's kind of a negative thing to say. But why is that racist? Uh, I, I think it is racist in its impact. And I, I think it's other things as well. And I think that we like a lot of the coverage I read uh, didn't necessarily take the time to explain this stuff. Yeah, her wording was not great. <laughs> no, the wording was not great, and it's not true. It's not It's not true that there were only several hundred thousand people when it was British Mandate Palestine. There were over a million, and you couldn't grow things on it. It was a crappy piece of land. It's more subjective what, what's crappy and what isn't, but certainly, certainly there were people growing things on it. Mm-hmm. The reason why that is such a volatile and offensive thing to say is that I remember this as a kid in Jewish class, this narrative of making the desert bloom, Mm -hmm. how Israel was this barren desert until it was the Jewish state. Mm -hmm. And that narrative was seized upon, I think correctly, by Muslim voices and pro-Palestine voices because that narrative is used and has been historically used to justify the displacement of Palestinians from that land yes. and the, the the seizure of farms where people were growing olives and other things. Yes. And it, it's part of a narrative that like, well, nothing wrong was done because there was nothing there. Any, and there weren't many people. It was a piece of crap land. Yeah, it's no big deal. I don't think that you should be able to say that and continue to, uh, if you stand by those words, you can't represent Muslim people. It's factually wrong and it's deeply offensive, especially at this time. Mm-hmm. But she didn't stand by those words. She uh, apologized without reservation. She took responsibility. I, I don't think she was trying to mitigate what she said because it's, it's about the impact, not the intent. But she, was, she said something about like, I was referring to the natural resources. And mm-hmm. this is a piece of missing context as well that I think is missing from her critics' analysis of this. And it's kind of personal to get into, but I feel like some people are, are new to these issues and it's worth sharing this stuff. And again, maybe, Rachel, you remember this as well. Like, when I was taught about the land of milk and honey and making the desert bloom, it was not exclusively about justifying what was done to the Palestinians. In fact, when you're a little kid, they don't really talk about Palestinians very much, or they didn't back when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. There was another narrative that this was a part of, and that was the narrative of the Jews as a people who were not allowed to own land in Europe and many other places— who were, you know, forced into other types of work, including, you know, money lending, and then were scorned and hated for that, and who were considered parasites and then were slaughtered like cattle on that basis. And so when you're teaching children about that true story, it's it's a very nice happy ending that, and then the Jews had land, and look, they made it bloom. And there is truth to that, too, because they, when it became Israel, the, the amount of farmable land doubled and the agricultural output multiplied by 16. 
And those are things that Israelis can be proud of, and those are nice things, and those are things that you might teach to a Jewish child that don't really have anything to do necessarily with this other, I think, very negative use of that narrative. But I bring it up only because we are having these debates like about what one idea actually means, you know, like what does from the river to the sea actually mean? And I don't like it when pro-Israel voices say that absolutely and always means genocide of Jews. And there's plenty of people who say from the river to the sea who don't mean that at all. They mean that they, they want Palestinian people to be free from the river to the sea. So I think that it's one thing and it's a good thing that Selena Robinson took responsibility for how her words were received and the harm that they did. But what I'm reading is like, no, she is a Islamophobic racist. And I think there's room for some nuance. And I think that there has to be room for somebody to apologize. But there was not. Her apology was not considered enough. There was a movement to sack Selena, and uh, her office was vandalized. People called her a Nazi, and then her resignation was demanded. Mm -hmm. And even more explanation is necessary here because this is weird. You know, the premier of BC, David Ebby, he made a mistake and apologized, and that seemed to be okay. On on Holocaust Remembrance Day, he said, we stand with the Muslim community. Right. It's a very strange thing to say on Holocaust Remembrance. Whoops. <laughs> but he said, whoops. You know, that was uh, meant for a different day. And okay, so why why did Selena Robinson get held to a different standard here? And I think I have to explain this context as well. There was a pre-existing controversy with Selena Robinson around a English instructor named Natalie Knight, who's also an activist. And Natalie Knight said the following at a demonstration. This was a feat of determination and ingenuity only eclipsed, only eclipsed by the amazing, brilliant offensive waged on October 7th. And those are not remarks that she has apologized for. She, she thinks that that was amazing. And brilliant. And Selena Robinson took issue with that. I think that I could certainly understand any Jewish person and any elected leader saying like, wow, this is a, an English instructor who's teaching a class, teaching who knows what they're teaching. They're teaching Jewish kids. I wouldn't feel safe as a Jew in a class taught by somebody who thought that the incineration of kibbutzniks and peace activists and babies. And I, I don't want to get into, I'm sorry. Like, I, I just, I hope that it's not even necessary to call that amazing and brilliant, to call a, a slaughter like that amazing and brilliant is a disqualifying thing from being in a position like a, as an English teacher. And Selena Robinson denied that she like interfered to get Natalie Knight removed, but Natalie Knight was removed. And that's when the calls to get rid of Selena Robinson started. And so this seems like a bit of a settling of a score. <sighs> this is hard to understand just from what you read in the media. And what we're reading now is that even this is not enough because even though she's been kicked out as minister, she's still in, in caucus. She's still in the NDP. And she said, I'm not going to run again. She's leaving politics. And she, she says that she had decided that before all of this. The Maple says she, it's not enough. She should be kicked out of the NDP. She's an anti-Palestinian racist. She's a racist liar. Rachel, it's so ugly out there. It really is. We just found out that Trudeau invited that Nazi to a party and then, like, didn't say anything after. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's not a canceling offense. I don't think it should be. Like, it's just people make stupid mistakes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a scary time for 
anyone to express any opinion or comment on the situation. The disagreements are are really intense. People on all sides are feeling raw and scared and angry. And yeah, unfortunately, many people have been losing their jobs or being blacklisted for weighing in on the issue. And I'm not talking about like the very egregious, explicit hate speech or, or calls for violence or harassment, just having opinions people don't agree with. What Robinson said was clumsy, but was it beyond the pale? Does she deserve to be fired? Does she deserve this much hate? You know, as you pointed out, she did admit to her mistake and and was willing to make amends. So you wouldn't think that flippant comment would be a, a resignable worthy offense. But, you know, most examples of people being fired have been from people saying pro-Palestinian speech. Now, you know, some pro-Israel speakers are being canceled too, but, you know, it's, it's having a very chilling effect. And I, I'd hope that there'd be more tolerance for speech we don't agree with, you know, whether from the right or the left. I appreciate you talking to me. And I, and I, I like, I, I, I don't know. I have queer and trans people in my family and in my network of friends, my community, I guess, who are Jewish. And I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but the people I know are finding it really, really hard because they worked really hard to build community. And as Jewish politics in Canada moved to the right, they did not feel at home there. And they found community with people who I think for reasons that are very understandable are filled with rage and sadness for what's happening. But somewhere in the translation of this, a lot of Jewish people on the left or in progressive circles are losing a home. You know, they're losing a community, they're losing friends. And I don't know, there's this zero-sum game. I mean, you know, this story in the Maple, I, I get angry when I read this stuff. Like, like apology is not enough, the resignation is not enough. And, and they accused her of racism for saying that she would take anti-Islamophobia training, mm-hmm. right? Like, this is what the Maple wrote. Rather than listening to warnings, she said she would take anti-Islamophobia training, failing either intentionally or through sheer ignorance to recognize the distinction between Islamophobia and anti-Palestinian racism. And that is so dishonest when you know the story, which is that the BC Muslim Association asked her to take (laughs) anti-Islamophobia training. And they've been a very reasonable voice in this, and they seem to be willing to accept her apology. But the angrier voices have prevailed here, and she's being driven out of out of public life. And, you know, the Jewish community loses a representative on the left. So I don't know where we go from here. Like, it's it's there's a, a letter from the rabbis of Vancouver, the Rabbinical Association, and a letter to the premier that is so angry and hurt. And it, it ends with the sentence, we will remember this day the next time you ask for our trust and support. Things are headed in a very, very bad direction. And I don't know. The first thing I talked about with Emily Nicola after October 7th is that we are increasingly going to face pressure to join a side. And we'll be told that we have enemies and we have to join a side and fight the other side. And this dividing up of Muslim and Jewish communities, it's frightening. It's, fr- it's frightening. Like, I, th- I think that the only thing now is to, like, try to resist Try, try to resist these forces that want us to fight each other. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, like I personally just want to be involved in conversations and, and discourse that brings people together, that 
fosters greater empathy and understanding rather than divisiveness. I don't want to give anti-Semitism or Islamophobia or anti-Palestinian speech any free passes. But it's dangerous to stop talking, you know, like even when somebody's like, that's past the line, especially if somebody wants to apologize or even just to keep talking. I think it's like the most dangerous thing is when you stop. For sure. And there's this chilling effect. I'm honestly afraid, you know, to talk about this subject publicly because I don't want someone to misinterpret what I say or what I feel or or to hate me if they don't agree. And so, you know, no doubt political parties and cultural and educational institutions are are scared too, you know, like actors are losing their jobs and art and theater and book events are being canceled and workplace tensions are at an all-time high. It's a scary time and I wish there would be more conversation and people coming together. The discourse is just so fraught and divisive and emotional, understandably. Yeah, I really appreciate you talking to me. Well, I'm yeah happy to talk to you. That's Shortcuts for this week. Rachel, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. Rachel, tell people where they could find your book. Oh, yeah. Dead Mom Walking, a memoir of miracle cures and other disasters. Uh, Support your local indie bookstore. It's an excellent book. Check it out. This episode is produced by Jess Schmidt with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Listen, if you value the conversations that we bring you, please support Canada Land. We really do need supporters to chip in, pay for journalism, We're going to give you things, premium access to all of our shows, ad-free, early releases, bonus content, our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, supporting us means that you are helping to solve Canada's journalism crisis. You're doing something to push back against the collapse of our media, and you will be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.